I have many times in my life as a worship leader experienced the Spirit tying together maybe my call to worship or a song or two so intimately with, uh, particularly like the closing song, so intimately with the message. Um, it's cool for me to be able to see that in reverse because, Isaac, what you said in your call to worship was so good. Who we are determines what we do. My meditation today is on Isaiah 43:21. Uh, this is who we are. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Who you are determines what you do. Um, as Kenny said, the topic that I'm taking from my meditation is why and how do we worship in song. But uh, before we get into that, we're going to start with some trivia. Five questions, a few of which uh, pretty much no one here in here has any chance of getting right. Uh, so, yeah, don't, don't keep score. You won't win. Question number one, what is the earliest mention of music in the Bible? Genesis 4.21, we learn that the sixth generation born to Adam and Eve uh, had a member named Jubal. And Jubal was, quote, the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. So history's uh, first recorded musical family in the seventh generation of all mankind. Um, the Bible's first mention of music in the first four chapters. How many songs? Question number two. How many songs are included in the Bible? There are yeah, more than four. More than four in the book of Psalms. Uh, there are nearly 200 songs included in the Bible. The first, and this is really cool, the first song in Exodus 15, uh, the song of Moses, where Moses and the Israelites burst into victorious singing uh, after their journey across the Red, the Red Sea. Interestingly, the last song uh, recorded in Revelation 15, so Exodus 15, now in Revelation 15, last book of the Bible, John sees Christians bursting into singing upon their victory over the beast. This song, entitled The Song of the Lamb, is a modified version of the Song of Moses. So the Bible songs, the Bible is bookended by the same song, a victory song, praise unto God. Under God. Question number three, how many musicians did David appoint in the service of the temple? In 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we see David's first act as king arriving in Jerusalem. The return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the commanding of Asaph, the leader of music, accompanied with a community of 288 highly trained vocalists and instrumentalists to permanently occupy a new role, to worship the Lord before the Ark, night and day, indefinitely in song. But if you guessed 288, you're very lucky, but you're wrong. The community is later reported in First Chronicles to have grown to over 4,000 members. All right, last two questions. These are tied. Uh, this one you might get. What is David's favorite instrument? Harp. Harp. I heard more lyres than harps. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, the harp is David's uh, personal instrument of choice. And depending on your uh, in translation of choice, it's mentioned over 100 times in the Bible. This, is, this one's for you. What is God's favorite instrument? That's right, the human voice raised in praise, most frequently mentioned instrument, uh, linked to being pleasing to God. Keep that 
that phrase in your mind, pleasing to God. The ESV specifically mentions praise 238 times. So to answer my first question, why do we worship in song? I've pulled four insights from this trivia to get into that. So insight number one, scripture is saturated with worship, with song. The use of music for praising God repeats all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 200 praise songs are included in canon. Compare this to Jesus' roughly, roughly 50 recorded parables, 23 recorded uh, healings. Now, we recognize these are not probably the only, record, or the only healings or parables that Jesus did, but neither are these the only songs that were written to God or sung to God over the time that the Bible was written. God includes 200 songs of praise, and that eclipses the, in, in Scripture, which eclipses the accounts of Jesus' miraculous works. That is significant. Scripture is saturated with song. Insight number two, there will be praise through music in eternity. Revelation's song of the Lamb. Be, there will be worship in eternity uh, in song. Insight number three, music is a unique and key vehicle of praise. We know that um, worship and song are not synonymous, right? There are countless ways to worship, and song is one of them. But music is not the exclusive vehicle of praise, it is a unique and key vehicle of praise. The first temple of Israel, song is one of only a few vehicles of praise which God uh, compelled David to employ in the Holy of Holies. Music occupies the closest proximity to his presence in the temple, and that's significant. Final insight, God's favorite instrument is the human voice, raised in praise. As skilled as the musicians were, as skilled as David uh, presumably was on the, on the harp, nothing compares in God's mind to the sound of a joyful no noise sung unto him. So on Sunday mornings when you come to praise, uh, as skilled as we musicians intend to be and endeavor to be from the stage, you hold the instrument that God longs to hear. You are the praise band. Your voice is more pleasing. Hear this, not yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, in a bit. We'll worship in a bit. Your voice is more pleasing to the God of the universe. Hear this. Your voice is more pleasing to the God of the universe than any guitar, drum set, piano. This is significant. God's favorite instrument is a human voice raised in praise. So summary, why do we worship? Uh, putting these insights together... The most basic answer I can give is because it's pleasing to God. Many of you remember uh, the story in Genesis of Cain and Abel. One brought an offering that was pleasing to God and the other did not. The takeaway is that we want to offer God something in praise that he loves. Worship through song is pleasing to God and that's why we do it. Question number two, how do we worship in song? And this is kind of a misnomer. Because I don't believe, and I would argue that we don't need to be taught how to worship. Rather, we need to be reminded who to worship. There is a type of worship that God hates. Amos 5, which you can read later if you'd like, contains an interesting rebuke. Here God reports that he hates their gatherings, their worship services. While they sing to him, they do, their music is noise. Noise to God. We as a church can make music that God hates. Music that is noise to him. When God's critique falls in Amos, it has nothing to do with a, a, a lack of skill, 
craft or even knowing how to worship. You do not need to be trained how to worship. His critique has everything to do with a lack of worshiping him and only him. Does this apply to you? Let's dig a little deeper. So we recognize the Bible is historically accurate. One way, though, to apply the Old Testament in particular is is to view it as an allegory. And in this allegory, the stories and trends observed over generations of prose indicate seasons, trials, tendencies that we may each face in our individual lives. One of these trends is Israel's tendency to drift from worshiping God alone, though it's repeatedly and explicitly commanded of his people, most memorably in the second commandment. Think about the second commandment. This command is not, don't forget how to worship me. It's not even don't forget to worship me. The command is don't give my worship that I created you for to something else. Does this apply to you? If you've read much of the Old Testament at all, you know that Israel repeatedly gave in to her natural tendency to worship everything except for God. Sometimes momentarily, sometimes for generations on end. Thankfully, that condition was repeatedly answered in God and his good grace, restoring Israel to himself with a reminder to stop doing that. (laughs) I'll reiterate, though, again, they did not need to be taught how to praise. Isaiah 43, 21, I read it at the beginning. The context is Israel being restored yet again unto God, God reminds the Israelites who they are, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The Israelites were created for worship. They couldn't help but worship without ceasing. They forgot who to worship. Man, how true is this allegory for our lives? This week when you sat down to spend time with God, what distracted you? When you turned your heart to prayer, what was on your mind instead? This morning, when the church around you sang praises to God, what was in your thoughts? Was it the goodness of God, the creator's praise? Or was it the promotion you thought you'd get by now? A new car? Peace in your, final, your family finally being restored? The kids moving out. Maybe these last two are one and the same. A sin issue your child is working through that is driving you crazy. If you looked good this morning, this next one hits home. If the Eagles will ever win two games in a row again. (laughs) These things are not inherently bad, and I hesitate to claim that everything that commands our attention is an idol. However, listen to this. If you cannot sustain a focus on God, particularly when you try to, Chances are that underneath this distraction is something fighting for his place and getting your praise. If you cannot sustain a focus on God, particularly when you try to, chances are that underneath this distraction is something fighting for his place and getting your praise. It may not be obvious at first glance because, again, the top-level thing may seem good. But maybe underneath is something conceptual, a fear or an idea. Maybe it's a physical item. These are the things we think of as, item, uh, as idols. Maybe it's a, a state of being that you want to get to, retirement, your promotion. Idols are limitless in form. But if it's fighting for the top spot in your thought life, even momentarily, it's an idol. 
If it causes you to question his goodness, it's an idol. If it causes you to question his power, it's an idol. If it causes you to commit the original sin Adam and Eve committed, to trust what they saw rather than what he said, it is an idol. And if it stops you from trusting, hoping in, worshiping him rather than it, it is most certainly an idol. Take a moment, just a moment, to identify something in your life that may satisfy this criteria. Consider your relationship with it. Constant thoughts about it between meetings or putting the kids down for a nap. How particular you are about this thing. Your persistent research on it. Your belief that if you just had it, you'd finally be happy. Your fear of losing it or the ache of lacking it. Receive this as me preaching to myself, too. I'm telling you this out of experience. Those things, constant thoughts about it, particular, how particular you are about it, persistent research on it, belief that if you just had it, you'd finally be happy, fear of losing it or the ache of lacking it. This is worship. When the church praises God in song, if you're experiencing this, you will not contribute, and if you do, your music will be noise to him. No, you do not need to be taught to worship. Indeed, you were formed for the very purpose of worship. You need to be reminded who to worship. This morning, could it be that you need to be reminded who to worship? If this is you, the good side is that your response is simple. God is not simply saying, stop doing that on your own power. The command is to worship him above all other gods. Your solution is to bring your idol to him as an offering. Sacrifice it. Cut the thing's head off and give it to God. Don't deny its presence in your life to God by singing along with the rest of the church with this thing still banging around in the back of your head, trying to mind over matter its demand that you continue praising it instead of God like you have all week. Stop making noise. Stop singing. Identify the thing and whisper to him, Lord, I can't focus because on you because of this idol. Clearly, I'm worshiping something else instead of you. Like Israel, I've done it again. I've placed an idol above you. In faith, now let me read these because Isaac sang a song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy throne above. In faith I offer this thing to you and receive my call of Isaiah 43:21. I've been formed to worship you and I will do that this morning and then sing. And when you leave today in the moments this week that you would be spending relentlessly thinking about that thing, give it to God again and praise. This is how we worship. A quick uh, note on worship as a community. So the band, you can now come up. Hopefully there was stuff in between their initial entry and now that you'll take with you. I, I briefly made the point that God's favorite instrument is the human voice raised in praise, that each of you is a member of the praise band. When we come together and praise communally, we build a free will offering, free will song offering to him collectively in a way that we can't during the rest of the week alone. With God's favorite instrument being your voice, you all contribute the song offering. 
Therefore, the quality of this offering we bring together to our God is your collective responsibility. A few years ago, Toyota had a recall uh, of thousands of vehicles because one shoddy component on an otherwise high-quality vehicle caused the driver to be unable to disengage the cruise control. Uh, without addressing this component, those cars were worthless and even dangerous. Don't be that shoddy component. Address your heart when you worship communally. Approach this with intentionality. Why do we sing on Sunday mornings? Because it is pleasing to God. How do we sing on Sunday mornings? So that it's pleasing to God. I told Darren that was outstanding. That was an outstanding meditation on worship. God's really blessed our church. Guys, we just people that can meditate and then teach. I'm really grateful for that. 2024, the, the, as we head into 2024, the theme that we've decided on is gospel culture. We're going to be talking about what that means. But when you think about a vibrant gospel culture, worship, as Darren told us from God's word, will be a part of that. What I'm going to talk on now is an extremely important component of a vibrant gospel culture as well. Community. I'm going to talk about community for, try to do as well as Darren did with my timing. In the opening intro, introduction to his book called Tribe, Sebastian Younger tells a coming of his coming-of-age story. It's filled with a lot of young male angst. He tells, after having graduated from college, that he grew up in the suburbs of Boston, probably an area a lot like where we grew up. And he says that nothing really ever happened there that, that required a banding together in a collective effort. He grew up in a, lot, in a neighborhood a lot like ours, where we put high hedges up and high fences to keep us from really knowing our neighbors. No one really knew each other. They were secluded from one another. And if anything did happen, you called the police, you called the fire department, or you called the township maintenance department. They never needed to, to band together. And he had this longing, he says, in his heart as a young man. He had this longing to, to, to contribute in some meaningful way, to, to show his worth, to be a part of something. And so he had these, he's, these questions formed in his mind. How do you become an adult in a society that asks for no sacrifice? How do you become a man in a culture that doesn't require courage? And his book, his introduction and his book explore this deep human longing that we all have to belong. 
to be a part of something. And the eternal human quest for meaning. And he ended his introduction with this sentence. He said, Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not being necessary. When I think about this longing that I believe is in every human heart, it's this longing. Honestly, if we're, if we're honest, there's this longing in every human heart to belong, to be a part of something meaningful, to have deep friendship, something that Instagram doesn't really offer. And it's not just to belong. It's to have a purpose, to have a cause, to have a meaning, to have a mission. What we really want and what we really need is a Christ, a community, and a cause. A Christ, a community, and a cause. And I can't think of a more vivid snapshot of a community with a cause than what Luke tells of and writes about in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'll read it and I'll make a few brief comments. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the word of the Lord. This is a description of the first church, the early church. Luke writes this, And they, this gathering of believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a picture. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that group? Three primary elements of real community. Three primary elements of real community. And as we briefly review each of these primary elements of real community, you're asking yourself these questions. Is this element of community present in my life? And to what degree is it present? Is this element, this primary element of Real community present in my life, and to what degree is it present? First element that we see right here from the scripture, the first element of real community is apostolic teaching, which is another way of saying, parenthetically, the gospel. What caused this community? What formed this community? How did it come to be? 
it, as I'll tell you, if you know the, the preceding chapters, you know that it was Peter, the apostle Peter, preaching the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that formed and created this gospel community. What's the difference between a small club of people who have an interest in the same thing and real community? It's the gospel. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between this gathering of people that we call a church and a crowd? What makes you, what makes us not a crowd? I'll tell you, it's the gospel, the message of all that God did in Jesus to save us, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see this, what preceded this, this, this final chapter, or this final section in chapter 2? It was Pentecost. It was the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit of God reconfigures community. Actually, the Spirit of God causes real community. A real gospel community is a people whose lives are being shaped by the gospel, by the word of God. I'll say it again. A real gospel community is a group of people whose lives are being shaped, being formed by the word of God. Got a text last week after I spoke on biblical meditation. My friend Corey texted me and he was really convicted of his lack of devotion to God's word. And in the last couple of years, he's become very devoted to physical fitness, but, but found himself lacking in the area of spiritual fitness. And he texted saying, you know, I've been doing these ice plunges. It's the new thing in the physical fitness world. You just get a bucket of water and you climb, you stick it outside and you climb into it. He's doing these. And so he was listening to me speak on biblical meditation. He said to himself, Corey, you're willing to get into 38 degree water for a few minutes every day in the middle of the winter, but you can't meditate on God's word for five minutes. He told himself, come on, bro. To what degree is the word of God shaping your life? It's the first primary element of real community. The second one, so we're talking about three primary elements of community. The second one is devotion to one another. We see this running through this passage. It's devotion, devotion to one another. Another way of saying devotion to one another is actually community. Real community requires someone else. It requires one another. You see this one another running through the entirety of the New Testament. You see the one anothering taking place in this passage. Real community actually satisfies the longing of every human heart to belong to something, to be a part of something. There's this devotion to do things together. And if you go through this passage, I'll leave it to you to meditate on. You can see that their devotion was attached to these verbs. They were devoted to the preaching. They were devoted to the word. They were devoted to sharing uh, their belongings with one another. They were devoted to meeting one another's needs. They were devoted to caring for one another. Their devotion resulted in all these activities. How can we describe it? It's living life together. It's sharing our lives together. It's life. Some people refer to it as life on life, discipleship. 
When it comes to community, the question is not, do I attend? That's an insufficient question. It's, do I participate? To what degree do I participate? Robert Frost famously wrote that home is the place when you have to go there to have to take in. Real community is much more difficult to define. But a start might be the people that you feel compelled to share yourself with. To what degree are you sharing yourself with others and involved in other people's lives to the degree that they're sharing their life with you? That's the second primary element. The third is this. Third primary element of real community, adding to their number daily. It says it right here. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Another way to describe that is mission. You'll notice this is our vision, right? Gospel, community, mission. The scripture speaks, this, this section speaks of them, the, the people being witnesses. That the Spirit of God empowered them for witness. What's a witness? I'll tell you, biblically what a witness is, someone who sees something important or amazing. That's what a witness is. So, and without getting an all, into all kinds of evangelistic strategies and missional strategies, what you're called to be if the Spirit of God lives in you and has saved you is a witness. So what that means is to simply bear witness means you need to actually have some friends who aren't followers of Jesus around you so they, they observe your witness. So it's as simple as, and that's what they're doing. They're just living their lives. They're just sharing their lives together. And the, the Lord tells us that that experience of them sharing their lives with one another actually results in the Lord adding to their number day by day. I was talking to a man last week who, who has, he's telling me he has this sudden urge to read his Bible. Because he's been coming here on Sundays. Because he knows some people from this church that love Jesus and love this community. And they just invited him to come along. And so now he's telling me that he has this sudden urge to read his Bible. He's going to become a Christian if he hasn't become one already. Why? Because he's just born witness. Notice something. There's this component of praise and prayer that permeates all three elements of the community. So it's all through there. There's prayer and praise permeates all three elements. Adoration of Christ through meditation on the gospel, results in a fountain of praise. When the gospel community gathers, our primary purpose is praise. That's what Darren was teaching us. And the effect of our praise is mission. 
God adding to our number daily. So what we're going to do is we're going to add this. We're considering these elements of community. And now we're going to take a little time to reflect that we might praise, that we might pray together. We've put together, Gabe actually put together a, a video recap of 2023 at Brandywine Grace. And what it's going to do is it's going to fill your heart. It's going to uplift your hearts. And it's going to set us up to reflect and to have a time of prayer. So let's roll that video.